Welcome to Cancer Conversations, a podcast series from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. In this episode from February 2016, Dr. David Reardon and Dr. Patrick Wen discuss the latest research and treatment for adult brain tumors. Dr. Reardon is the clinical director for Dana-Farber's Center for Neuro-Oncology, and Dr. Wen is the director for Dana-Farber's Center for Neuro-Oncology. Ann Dorr, from Dana-Farber's Communications Department, joins them for the conversation. Uh, brain tumors have been one of the most challenging cancers to treat. What are some of the new approaches to treating brain tumors that have you both excited? Want to take that first, Dr. Reardon? Well, I think um, the cancers that arise in the brain um, have been historically a very challenging uh, group of uh, cancers to treat for a number of different reasons. We know um, it can be difficult to get treatments effectively into the brain. For example, there's a special protective barrier that Mother Nature designed us with called the blood-brain barrier to protect our brain from anything that could be potentially harmful. Unfortunately, that barrier works all too well when it comes to cancer treatments um, um, particularly, um, and many of those don't effectively penetrate into the brain and the, where the tumor is located uh, to be effective. So I think we have put a lot of effort and energy um, into focusing on our, our clinical trials and much of the ongoing research into uh, clarifying and um, uh, confirming that these therapeutics that we're moving forward into the clinic for our patients do have a uh, good likelihood of penetrating and effectively getting into the brain. And that, that's a critical factor. If it doesn't get in, then how do we expect it to be able to work effectively? Now for immunotherapies, a lot of the treatments we're working with um, to help mobilize the body's natural defenses, the immune system, to attack the cancer, we know those, the immune system can effectively get into the brain. We know because of infections and inflammatory conditions where the immune system plays a very important role in those conditions, that these types of treatments being utilized and exploited to fight cancer can effectively get in and, and uh, have an impact on the tumor, even though it's located in the brain. Dr. Wen? I think one major area of advance in, in all of cancer, but including brain tumors, is the understanding of the molecular changes that drives these tumors. So with, with, the, uh, with projects that the National Cancer Institute has uh, helped with, such as the Cancer Genome Atlas project that Dana-Farber played an important role in. Uh, we've been able to characterize the molecular changes in both high-grade and low-grade gliomas. So we understand all the major molecular drivers of these tumors. And because of that, we can now start to develop drugs that target these molecular drivers. And so that's been a, a really important advance. And I think at Dana-Farber, we have um, we try with every patient that comes here to sequence their tumors with Oncopanel, which is free for all our patients. And for brain tumor patients, also another molecular test called Array CGH. So if the patient has enough tumor, we can get a very good idea of all the molecular drivers of their tumor. And that helps us select the uh, molecular targets and the drugs that might help these patients in their clinical trials that might be useful. Is Dana-Farber the only, one, only center doing um, profile or DNA sequence? There are many centers that are developing these. We have one of the most comprehensive molecular testing for all types of cancers, but especially brain tumors. 
And uh, some of these tests, such as Oncopanel, where we sequence 300 genes, is free to all of our patients. And so are they asked when they come um, for treatment, they sign up to be a part of that program? Yeah, they, they sign a very simple consent form, and then we try to get the tissue. And if, the, if there is enough tissue, we will do it, and we will get this information uh, for them. I think that's a, a critical point that, that um, Dr. Wen had emphasized um, for our patients, that um, we do a, an extremely comprehensive analysis of their tumor. We know we're learning more with the technology that's becoming available that every patient's tumor, just like every person, is going to be different. And if we have the tools to be able to look closely enough, we can identify what's unique and different about their tumor, what may be the critical factors that are driving those cancer cells to grow and divide, what's keeping them surviving, um, what's allowing them to, to uh, invade and infiltrate into the normal brain uh, that's unique and different for those patients. And then with more and more drugs and treatments coming along, we can try to move toward matching the right drugs up with the right patient's tumor profile. That's the whole critical idea behind the precision medicine, which has been in the news quite a bit and um, highly publicized now as a, as a critical advance to try to have a more meaningful impact on treatment of cancers. And, and we've been involved with that. And Dr. Wen's been leading that effort for brain tumors for a number of years now. And uh, I think got to the point now where we can take, uh, move to be able to take advantage of those uh, technologies and advances. Uh, in a very important and meaningful way for our patients. Uh, interestingly, that type of approach is also a way that we're looking at moving forward with immunotherapies as well. That with these drugs, even though they've had some very remarkable successes across a spectrum of different cancers, we know certain cancers respond and some don't respond as well. And then even within responsive cancers, some patients respond and others don't. And we've got to figure out why that is and understand what's unique and different about the immune, uh, um, immune status of that patient and their tumor to be able to match the right immunotherapy cocktail or approach for that patient as well. So precision medicine, I think, is a very exciting area now for our patients, both from a biologic perspective where we're trying to match the right drug up with the right mutational profile of their tumor and even now beginning to move more for um, a, a more effective immunotherapy strategies. How exactly does immunotherapy work for so, brain cancers? So immunotherapy is um, a very basic principle. It's taking our natural defense system, what Mother Nature designed us with to protect us from anything foreign, getting into our body and causing harm. The immune system has evolved um, um, elaborately um, and we have um, a very potent uh, multi-armed defense system, if you will, of, that's capable of attacking and eradicating anything that's not supposed to be there and could be potentially harmful. If you think about it, cancers are a foreign entity. They should not be, they're not, norm, not normally present in our body and our natural defenses should be recognizing them and attacking them and eliminating them. And indeed, we now know from ongoing research that many cancers that would develop in any of us on a day-to-day -day basis, our immune system is able to recognize them and identify them and attack them before they ever become a cancer or a tumor in the body. But unfortunately, there are some cancers that are able to, to come up with strategies to avoid the immune system and be able to grow 
and um, in, in cancers in the body spread elsewhere in the body or in the brain, they tend to invade and infiltrate into the adjacent brain and in many ways shield themselves or protect themselves from the immune system, knowing they're there, identifying them, and then being able to attack them. So what immunotherapy is working on um, are strategies to enhance the natural defense system by either sensitizing the immune system against specific targets within the tumor cells to it then allow the, the, the immune system to attack, very much like when you get a tetanus shot and your immune system gets sensitized against the tetanus bacteria so that if, heaven forbid, we're ever exposed to that, the immune system would be able to attack it immediately and eradicate it. Um, we have strategies like vaccines that are designed to try to sensitize the immune system to attack specific markers on the tumor cells to, to eradicate them. And then we have other strategies like the most recent immune checkpoint inhibitors that are designed to enhance, in general, immune responses. And when we know that, and when, we, when we're able to successfully enhance general immune responses, sometimes that's sufficient to allow the immune system to successfully attack cancer. Um, uh, so those are two general strategies now that we're working with for immunotherapies, trying to sensitize the immune system specifically, as well as enhance its general reactivity to be able to more effectively treat uh, cancers, in particular brain cancers. What new therapies are on the horizon for patients with recurrent glioblastoma, Dr. Wendt? So, so I think they fall into the two categories we've discussed. Um, we are understanding the molecular changes that drive these tumors, so there's a lot of trials using targeted molecular therapies, uh, drugs to try and treat these tumors. There's a lot of work, and David is leading many of the trials to stimulate the immune system against the tumor using uh, checkpoint inhibitors or vaccines or a combination of the two. And then there's also work on drugs um, that affect the ability of the tumor to make new blood vessels. So Avastin is a drug approved for brain tumors and there are trials that try to improve the effectiveness of drugs like Avastin. So those are the main areas of research. And I think the one additional part of that that we're, you know, we're very fortunate to have with the terrific team we have working with us here at the, the Dana-Farber uh, to take advantage of Dr. Wen's expertise, to take advantage of some of the experience I've gained over the, over the years and some of our other, other colleagues and be able to bring some of these promising treatments together. Uh, glioblastoma is one of the most com complicated of all cancers, and it has a very remarkable ability to adapt and, and um, become resistant once treatments are started. I tell my patients we have treatments, we have treatments that can help you, but nobody has treatments that work durably the way we need them to work. And I think because of that adaptive capability of these cancers, because of their innate complexity, we're trying to bring these different strategies, angles of attack together into combinations um, where one approach will complement the other and um, hopefully lead to a more robust and more prolonged um, benefit against the cancer. So combination yeah. treatments, I think. Yeah, is David's absolutely right. So one of the trials we're, we're planning is a combination of using targeted molecular drugs with immunotherapies together. 
But there's actually another area that I think a lot of people are interested in, and that's viral therapy. Uh, for a long time, and, and led by Dr. Nino Chioka, who's the chairman of neurosurgery here, people have developed viruses that attack the tumor and kill the tumor cells. And there are a number of these viruses out there. But it, I think as people have un, uh, had more experience with these viruses, it's also clear that not only does the virus kill the tumor cells, but they stimulate an immune response. And that re immune response also helps to kill the tumor cells. So one trial that we're pl um, planning with uh, Dr. Chioka is to use a virus to kill the tumor cells, but to stimulate the immune response, and then to give an immunotherapy to augment that immune response and, and help kill more tumor cells. So that strategy uh, is being developed at a number of centers, but uh, Dana-Farber and Brigham Women's is one of those. Another from a viewer, what new treatments are available for lower-grade gliomas? And it's always good if you explain what a glioma is. So I'll explain. You can, you can talk about the treatment. But gliomas are a member of a family of cancers that arise in the brain. And they're a family because they, are, they come from a common origin type of cell in the brain. They all come from this type of cell called the glia. And the glia is the supporting architecture of the brain. It's kind of like the framework if you're building a house. It's not the nerves and the cells in the brain that do our thinking and remembering and tell our body what to do. It's the important architecture of the brain that gives the, the brain its anatomical structure. But unfortunately, that's where the majority of the cancers that arise in the brain come from. And they come uh, from this uh, glial common background structure or type of cell, if you will. But then the type of cancer that arises is um, we distinguish them based on Traditionally, it's been on the grade of the tumor, which refers to how aggressive the cells appear under the microscope. The less aggressive cells would be a grade one, and in this system, the most aggressive would be a grade four, and that typically is a glioblastoma. But the grade two tumors and the grade three tumors are kind of in between, and typically with the low-grade tumors, that refers to the grade two tumors that are clearly cancers, they're not benign growths, they're cancers, but they tend to grow less aggressively, but still can be quite infiltrative and extensive and ultimately destructive in the brain. And the other concerning thing about these lower grade tumors is because they come from the same family, they do have the capability over time of undergoing what we refer to as a transformation where they become more malignant. And a lower grade tumor would be, could become a higher grade grade four tumor, for example, and be much more aggressive and uh, life-threatening to the patients. The lower grade tumors, I think there's been some very exciting um, advances moving forward in the clinic, and Dr. Wen's been leading the development of a new class of therapies for the low grade tumors. I'll let him um, elaborate on. Yeah, so this is an area where there really has been really exciting work in the past couple of years. Last year, there were several papers that helped us understand the molecular changes in these tumors much better. And so we're much more able to classify these tumors and predict how well people are going to do and select the treatments for these patients better. One really important molecular change that's been known for a few years is something called an IDH mutation, isocitrate dehydrogenase mutation. This is present in about 80% of low-grade tumors, and it's important for a number of reasons. It 
tells us that that patient is going to do well. Those patients with a mutation tend to do better over time. But also, it's a molecular target. And so right now at Dana-Farber, um, we have four trials with drugs that target these IDH mutations. And we, in, in some of the preliminary data, we know that the drugs are hitting the target and affecting the metabolism of the tumor cells with these drugs. And hopefully with more time and more experience with these drugs, we'll, we'll see how well they work. But it's a really exciting area. IDH is also a target for vaccines, and a number of centers in Europe and in, in the U.S. are developing vaccines against these uh, mutations. So, so that, it, it, it's a really exciting area. Uh, in, a, in, in a tumor where for many years there hasn't been much progress, the past two years there's been an explosion of knowledge. I'm sure you get this question a lot, but for a patient newly diagnosed with brain cancer, should they seek out a second opinion from a cancer center like Dana-Farber? I feel very strongly uh, that uh, with these tumors, they require a multidisciplinary team that really is dedicated to the care of those patients. So for optimal care of a brain tumor patient, because of the uh, potential impact that the, the cancer can have because of the severity of and, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, impact on survival. Um, but they require uh, neurosurgeons who have expertise and significant experience. We know an effective surgery is not curative, but it's a big step forward in helping patients do well. Sophist the, the, uh, an important component of therapy is radiation therapy, chemotherapy, systemic agents dedicated people with expertise and the, the most advanced technology to be able to apply these therapies effectively for patients is critical. Um, we have, we're very fortunate to have outstanding nurses and, and clinical support staff um, to help us. Um, we can't work in a center like, uh, to do the work that we do in developing new therapies without the critical work from our pathology colleagues who are helping us to classify the, the tumors not only from the, the typical features, but these more important um, cutting-edge genetic factors that are um, we're learning more and more about and are exploiting therapeutically. Uh, we have a great team for um, helping us to do state-of-the-art imaging to be able to evaluate non-invasively how tumors are responding. Um, and uh, there's a rapidly growing technology that gives us much more useful and helpful information. Um, for, uh, to be able to monitor the outcome of our patients as well. So it truly takes a multidisciplinary team with significant expertise um, and experience. And then because there's so much room for improvement um, in outcome for the vast majority of these cancers, a center that's committed to research, uh, not only better understanding the cancers, but also being able to take that information and translate it into promising new therapies for patients as well. So. I feel pretty strongly that at least a second opinion uh, helps patients and families know sure that, uh, make sure they're on track and, and going in the right direction. That being said, we partner with community oncologists and, and community physicians, uh, and I think that's where patients and families get the best of both worlds because they have excellent care provided close to home with their community physicians. But they also have the ability to tap into our expertise and our resources and our, our team to be able to, to help make sure things go as, as well as possible. We, we also talked a lot about molecular testing. And that's only possible if the surgeons take out enough tumor. 
And so I think from, from the onset of their treatment, it's important either to go to a center like Dana-Farber so that you can get good surgery and get enough tissue to do all the testing that we can now do, or have your local doctor be aware that it's important to get enough tissue to allow all this testing to be possible. Okay, another question. What about brain tumors that are sometimes benign, like meningiomas? What is a meningioma? And would you expect immunotherapy to be, immunotherapy to be an effective therapy for these benign forms of tumors? So meningiomas are actually the most common primary brain tumor. It, it's a, a very slow-growing benign tumor that arises from the surface covering of the brain. And oftentimes people will have a meningioma diagnosed when they get an MRI for a headache and it's just an incidental finding. And often it's not a problem. But in a subset of patients, the tumors grow and causes trouble. And often you can just take out the tumor and the patient is cured. Or occasionally with the more aggressive ver variants of meningioma, radiation will be helpful. And we have very good radiation oncologists that can treat these tumors and, and do a great job in controlling it. But in a, sm in a smaller subset of patients, these tumors grow back after surgery and radiation therapy. And uh, there are new tr uh, therapies now being developed. Uh, David, do you want to talk about your immunotherapy? Yeah. So we've, we've uh, as Dr. Wen mentioned, there's a subset of these meningiomas um, that can be very difficult and challenging uh, for patients and recur and cause a, a lot of deficits and, and ultimately become life-threatening for patients. So um, a subset of these we have to come up with. We desperately need better therapies. Um, and lots of treatment has been tried historically, chemotherapies, for example, and they have not worked very well. Um, some of the research we've done here with our colleagues uh, in, at the Brain Tumor Center, um, the Neuro-Oncology Center, we've identified that um, meningiomas, particularly as they, we identify and classify the more aggressive ones, have many hallmarks of um, uh, abnormalities that uh, would make them potentially attractive or vulnerable for immunotherapy treatments. So we've looked specifically through a series of meningioma cases and published our recent research findings to identify that um, with increasing aggressiveness of these meningiomas, there is a, a potential marker or a strategy where immunotherapy may be beneficial and helpful. And we're about to launch the first immune checkpoint inhibitor trial for meningiomas that's ever been conducted. Um, so we're very excited about uh, moving forward with uh, beginning to, to look at potential immunotherapy um, trials or immunotherapy approaches for this subset of very difficult and challenging to treat tumors. We've also done work, um, Dr. Wen's been involved with, with the molecular, again, this idea of the genetic characterization of these tumors. And one of our colleagues, Dr. Ramin Barukam, has identified a series of abnormalities or mutations that are present in uh, a series of uh, meningioma tumors uh, that there are potentially targetable drugs used that could be used for these subset of meningiomas. So coming back to the theme of this precision medicine, um, there's uh, the potential, and we are moving forward with a clinical trial. Our, our colleague uh, uh, Priscilla Bastianos is, is leading um, to help um, use targeted therapies for appropriate meningiomas. 
Uh, let's talk about clinical trials. When do you recommend a patient for a clinical trial? Does this come during the initial treatment or does this happen down the road at some point? I, th I think especially for tumors like glioblastoma where the standard therapies help but we can do, we need to do so much better. I think every patient should think about clinical trials at every stage of the disease. Mm -hmm. So when they're diagnosed, I think it it's, would be very helpful for them to seek out uh, centers like Dana-Farber to see what clinical trials are available, and either to do it here or, or to partner with their local doctors if, if there's a clinical trial that makes sense. And then down the road, if the therapies are not helpful and the tumor starts to grow again, they, they should also look for clinical trials. There's, um, there's a lot of really exciting work and uh, treatments out there that they should um, avail themselves of. And how do they find out about clinical trials? Do you talk to them about them, or do they do research on their own, too, with other centers? Or Well, um, we're hopeful opportunities like this one, for example, will raise awareness and make, make patients and families aware that there are uh, promising new treatments and advances coming along. Um, we do get a lot of patients who uh, call up the center. So one, op one way to find out about clinical trials is to um, look at where you are geographically and identify a major cancer center. They tend to come from the major comprehensive cancer centers, so a university hospital or, or a major cancer center, um, and look at their website. And if you come to our website, you can pretty easily click into and see the different types of clinical trials that are there. Um, there's also a number to call, um, for example, on our, on our staff, uh, patients and families out in the community could call and say, I was diagnosed with or I have a, my tumor just came back do you have a trial I might be eligible for? And a member of our staff will help walk them through the potential options that might suit their situation. The clinical trials, um, we, we work very hard to design them to be effective so that at the end of the trial, we have important answers to, to critical questions that will hopefully be able to allow us to move forward and help more, more and more patients. But in order to design those trials to be as effective as possible and provide those critical answers, they have to have um, specifics that are unique, potentially unique uh, to each and every clinical trial. So um, although there may be a number of different opportunities, for example, at our center, we at any given time have 20, 25 active clinical trials. There may be only certain a certain one or two that exactly match up or are well suited for a given patient. So being able to, to identify a center where there are some clinical trials but then be able to, to work with that center to find out the ones that may be optimally suited or best suited for that patient takes a team that would be able to help them. It's overwhelming for patients and families but at centers like ours that are committed to doing this type of work, that's a good, they're good resources to be able to turn to. The National Brain Tumor Society has a great website with um, links for clinical trials uh, as well and other, other resources are, are out there as well for, for patients and families to turn to. Great. Uh, this is always a really um, popular topic. What about exercise and lifestyle? Can diet or exercise help reduce uh, the risk for getting brain cancer or recurrence of brain cancer? I feel very strongly about this, this and I try to emphasize this to every one of my patients that um, 
particularly once they're diagnosed with a tumor, a cancer, any cancer, brain cancer, but any cancer. It's more critical than ever to have a good healthy lifestyle. And a good healthy lifestyle keeps our heart healthy and, and keeps the rest of our body healthy. But we know more and more that good healthy diet and nutrition, getting regular exercise, getting plenty of rest, not getting run down, are critical for, the, for our body's immune system, for our natural defenses. And the stronger our immune system is, and particularly for patients, the better they're likely to do going through their treatment. So fewer side effects, but more importantly, the, their immune system may help them and help us fight their cancer. So the diet, uh, exer regular exercise, um, getting plenty of rest, I think are factors that each and every patient can control and take you know, the full responsibility for. There's so much in the life of a cancer patient and their family that they don't have a lot of control over and they have to deal with. But this is an area where I think they can really make a strong commitment and, and it, uh, I think, can pay off and help. I think, though, for those reasons, it could also be helpful in prevention of any cancer as well. The stronger our immune system is, the better it may be able to prevent a cancer from getting a foothold. Um, but I think once the diagnosis is made, it's more critical than ever for, for those uh, important aspects of a good, healthy lifestyle to be, um, to be prioritized. David was part of an important study with uh, his former colleagues at Duke where they looked at people with glioblastoma who exercised, and those people who exercised just lived longer. I think the other aspect for all our patients with the higher-grade gliomas is that we worry about blood clots, and so for the patients to be active is an important way to reduce the risk of blood clots. So you talk about how difficult it is for brain for patients with brain cancer. What are some of the problems specifically for them that they face during treatment that's, um, and what could be done to maintain the quality of life during their treatment? Brain cancer is unique, I think, from all of the cancers um, that um, our, our patients are, are, are confronted with. Um, cancers of the brain pose unique and special um, challenges. Um, because of their um, nature where they tend to infiltrate into the brain for reasons we don't understand. They don't metastasize in the body, which is a good thing, um, but they tend to, to try to make up for that by growing into the adjacent brain with little microscopic roots and fingers of tumor cells that can continue to grow and be ultimately destructive and damaging and put the patient's life at, uh, in, in, in jeopardy. Um, so I. I think uh, we have to think about brain cancer, and we do, um, and have our team designed accordingly to try to deal with the unique challenges that inevitably arise for every patient. There's a spectrum of their severity. Some are more severe, some are milder. Uh, but every patient and family deals with these um, issues and challenges that are unique to brain cancer patients. Um, you know, up, if you go up into the waiting room and talk to any of the families of any of my patients or the patients, um, they'll all complain they're frustrated that it's, um, their memory is frequently affected, that it's harder to remember things, and that happens to all of us as we get older, but I think it can happen more in an accelerated fashion, particularly with short-term memory. Most of my patients will um, um, 
let you know they're frustrated that it takes more energy and, and focus mentally to concentrate and to, to get things done where before they could just do it without having to put much, even thought or energy just came naturally. Now they find it has to, it takes more focus and concentration and energy. Um, and um, being able to do three or four things at once, like we're all so used to doing in our hectic day, day with uh, so much going on, many of, most of my patients will, will say it's harder to do that, that it, they used to be able to do that, and they're frustrated at not being able to do that. They have to kind of focus on one thing at a time, and if the TV's going and somebody's talking to them and somebody's trying to text them, it's overwhelming and they have to really kind of focus. Uh, brain, ca brain cancers can affect not only our thinking and our ability to process information, but they can affect our physical function where we can have, uh, patients can have weakness or trouble with coordination and balance and dexterity. Depending on the anatomical location of the brain, it can make it harder to speak and express ourselves. It can certainly affect vision, which is regulated by the brain. There's lots of, unfortunately, lots of potential downstream impacts that brain cancers can have for patients that typically don't come up for patients with, you know, lung cancer or leukemia or breast cancer. So we have organized our team, and Dr. Wen has put this, this wonderful team together here over the last several years where we have dedicated nursing staff, where we have dedicated social work staff, where we have dedicated psychology and psychiatry staff to help our patients and families deal with all of the different aspects of, of this disease. Because what we're, here, what we're here for, ultimately, is not only to help our patients live longer, but to help them live well uh, and to get as much out of each and every day and, and uh, uh, to feel as good as possible with the circumstances that they're confronted with. Yeah, David uh, described a very important part of our role here. We, we're trying to give our patients the best treatment for the cancer, but equally importantly is to give them the best life they can have. And so we spend a lot of time dealing with the neurologic issues, helping them with their seizures, with their memory, with their ability to focus. We use drugs to help them with energy level. And then dealing with a brain tumor is so stressful, both for the patient and the family. So we have wonderful social workers and psychiatrists to help with that aspect also. So we try to do everything we can to maximize the quality of life of our patients. That's my next question. How important is that family support or caregiver support for a patient's treatment? It, it's incredibly important, more than almost every other cancer, because when you have a brain tumor, the patient's ability to, to think through issues and to be in control is more difficult. And so having the family members there at the visits to help them remember what they need to do and to help them with their decisions is critical. And our final question, looking ahead, is there anything down the road that you see coming up that, um, that you haven't talked about yet that, that uh, might be of interest? I think the immunotherapy work that David is helping to lead is, is just really exciting. Already he's led a vaccine trial that, that's shown benefit in improving survival of glioblastoma patients. So we really feel that just around the corner, we're going to have the breakthroughs that we really all want. And, and by the time we have the next web chat, hopefully we will have these <laughs> major breakthroughs. 
Well, I'm looking forward to that. And thank you well, both so much. Uh, this has been really interesting. It's always great to have you both here to talk about um, neuro-oncology and brain cancer treatments and research. This has been Dana-Farber's Cancer Conversations, featuring Dr. David Reardon and Dr. Patrick Wen of Dana-Farber's Center for Neuro-Oncology. To download more episodes and learn about other cancer podcast series, visit DanaFarber.org slash podcasts.